Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel, and I'm joined by Eminence Bill Werner, Brent Palm, Lois Olson, and Mark Dorenkamp. We're going to delve into what's happening in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, a candid conversation about senior caregiving in Minnesota. The State Fair has named a new CEO. Part two on the new future of the Advanced Egg Research Project. But first, this was the week that the rough outlines of Minnesota's next two-year state budget started to take shape. And Eminence Bill Werner is here to explain what's happening. Tasha, lawmakers are now starting to buckle down on the budget because they got a new economic forecast this week. And it showed the budget surplus basically unchanged at $17.5 billion dollars. And Republicans wasted little time in saying, give it back. With a surplus as we have, and now seeing that is continuing, or it would be even higher if we hadn't factored inflation in, it's time to head down that path of providing tax relief to Minnesotans right away. House Minority Leader Lisa Damoth and Republicans' first call totally eliminate state income tax on Social Security benefits, regardless of income. Ending the tax on Social Security is something that both sides have campaigned on. I think we can fit that into the budget, and that's something we need to do for Minnesota. Governor Tim Walz responded, Democrats will relieve taxes on working Minnesotans. However, the proposal to relieve taxes on the wealthiest Minnesotans, we're not going to do that. Senate Minority Leader Mark Johnson from East Grand Forks said completely eliminating state tax on Social Security. It's a campaign promise that we have made. It's also a campaign promise, again, that many of the Democrats have made. Governor Walz fired back. Democrats had a deal with Republicans, but it had a shelf life, he said. And Republicans, quote, chose to roll the dice and they lost. Every single one of them walked away last May because they wanted a political message rather than that. Republican Senator Bill Weber from Laverne repeated a number of Democrats campaigned on getting rid of state income tax on 100 percent of Social Security benefits. If they cannot do it, you know, we will remind the voters of Minnesota that uh, they failed to do that when they were in control of everything. I know there was an argument made in the paper a while back, don't tax billionaires on Social Security. They'll be just fine. They will be just fine. The day after the $17.5 billion budget surplus forecast came out, House and Senate Republicans proposed giving about $13 billion of it back to Minnesotans. Of course, state income tax on Social Security totally eliminated Income tax rate cuts for the bottom two brackets, property tax relief for homeowners, farmers, resorts, and other businesses, an increase in the child tax credit, and a $2,500 rebate check for every married couple and $1,250 to single taxpayers, echoing the governor's walls checks, which his fellow Democrats are not showing much enthusiasm for. Rochester Republican Carla Nelson. If not now, when? When we have a $19 billion surplus and we cannot focus on getting much-needed tax relief back to struggling Minnesotans, when will we do it? Continuing the pressure, GOP lawmakers demanded an immediate vote in the Senate this week on Lonsdale Republican Bill Liskey's tax rebate plan, $2,200 for singles, $4,400 for married couples, another proposal along the same line as the governor's plan. This would be enough money to help uh, in situations like covering the energy costs that are rising, other inflationary costs such as eggs. As we all know, uh, eggs cost a lot more than they used to. Things of that nature, this, this would go directly to helping right away. But New Hope Democrat Ann Rest said those provisions will be part of the governor's tax bill. There is absolutely no reason um, 
to prematurely bring it to the floor. Later in the week, Republicans again demanded an immediate vote in the Minnesota Senate, this time on their other agenda item, completely repealing state income tax on Social Security benefits. Winona Senator Jeremy Miller arguing with a continued $17-plus billion budget surplus, no reason to wait. The state of Minnesota has the resources available right now to provide seniors this much deserved relief. But New Hope Democrat Ann Rath again responded her tax committee is in the midst of building its bill. Which is going to give a lot of relief and I uh, to Minnesota taxpayers we don't need to debate it today. Republicans are not in the majority in either the Minnesota House or the Senate but they might still be able to get leverage for tax relief and the way they could do that is to refuse to put up the votes that Democrats need to reach the required supermajority to pass a bonding bill for state public works projects. In the Senate, where Democrats have only a one-vote majority, Minority Leader Mark Johnson said Republicans want a bonding bill, but they need assurances that Minnesotans will receive tax relief. We need to see this uh, going through the process as well. Uh, before we can really start giving commitments on bonding bills. In the House, where Democrats also need Republicans' help to pass a bonding bill, Republican Minority Leader Lisa Damoth said if returning the surplus to taxpayers were a priority of the Democratic majority, something would have already been done. We would have heard those bills. They would have been on the governor's desk to be signed, but uh, the majority is telling us that tax relief for Minnesotans is not their priority right now. Democrats have a possible out if they do not want to make tax relief concessions to Republicans. Instead of borrowing the money through bonding, they could pay for public works projects with cash from the budget surplus. But that would take money from other programs that Democrats want. And this week... This is a crisis. Two-thirds of our eighth graders can't read at grade level. It might not be a fun and sexy issue to talk about literacy and helping kids learn to read, but it needs to be the priority of this legislature in this session. Republicans said this week it does little good to pour additional billions of dollars into public schools unless the state abandons what they say is the discredited whole language approach to teaching students how to read and replace it with a phonics-based method termed science of reading. Austin Representative Patricia Mueller says Mississippi in 2013 began a very strong literacy plan with phonics as its bedrock. They trained their teachers in the science of reading. They had support with literacy coaches. And within six years, they went from 49th in the nation in literacy scores to first. In Minnesota House Committee one night this week, a key Democrat agreed with Republicans that something has to change. You're right. What we are doing is not working. 50% of Minnesota kids are not reading at grade level. Edina Representative Heather Edelson, who agreed to Republicans' call for a clear definition in her bill of which reading instructional approach schools will use. That request came from Austin Representative Mueller. Because I know your goal is to make sure that we have kids that are reading. I know you. I know that. Tasha, poor student performance in reading and math is an issue that has dogged lawmakers for years. And we will see if they make any progress against it this legislative session. Another busy week at the state capitol. Thanks, Bill, for all your hard work. More Minnesota Matters after this. Wake up and text. Text and eat. Text and catch the bus. Text and miss your stop. Wait, 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 wait. Text and be late to work. Sorry, I'm late. Text and work. Text and pretend to work. Text and act surprised when someone calls you out for not working. <clears throat> Me? Text and meet up with a friend you haven't seen in forever. Hi. Oh, hey. Text and complain that they're on their phone the whole time. <sighs> 
text and listen to them complain that you're on your phone the whole time. Ugh. Text and whatever. But when you get behind the wheel, give your phone to a passenger. Put it in the glove box. Just don't text and drive. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel. Thanks for tuning in today. This week, Minnesota Matters correspondent Lois Olson continues conversations about caregiving and crisis across Minnesota. Today, Lois visits with Sue Knutson of Samaritan Bethany in Rochester about the labor shortage and what it means to their care center and what it means for caring for our seniors. Here's that conversation. Tough is even too simple of a word to use for the the last three years, but I think probably the hardest part of it is turning residents away. Um, we have been in the community in 1922 we were started, so in 2022 we got to celebrate 100 years of care, and when I reflect back on all of the individuals we served, I think the difficult part was the fact that we've had to turn so many away in the last three years because the staffing just hasn't been there. And we know that our high quality of care is directly related to the number of nursing assistants we have that can care for our residents. So we don't want to have someone come in if we can't give them the same excellent care that we've done for the past 100 years. And when you talk about that, just how many, you know, what's what's your capacity? If you had full employment, how many more people could you care for? When we were at full employment, we had 440 employees. We were the third largest medical employer in Rochester behind Mayo Clinic and Olmstead Medical Center. Wow. So um, we are not even, I don't think, in the top five anymore. We are just under 200 employees. We are licensed for 182 skilled nursing home beds. We currently are using 128. We have 54 beds on layaway. And out of the 128, we aren't even able to take care of 90 residents. So our occupancy is quite low. Um, we stay somewhere between the 85 and 88 number of residents we can care for. We have neighborhoods, floors. Um, in our building that has the 128. So we actually have one entire floor that's closed, even though the beds aren't on layaway, trying to concentrate our staff where we can care for people the best. So that's almost 100 people who can't yep. can't come get care. Correct. And they have to find care elsewhere. Correct, or sit in the hospital. <laughs> and, um, and what's, the, just so listeners know, what's the barrier? Um, I, wages are a big part of it. Um, the number of people that are around Olmstead County. I mean, I think um, even if we get wages as high as we can get them, you know, at the $25 for a nursing assistant, um, we, we need more people in Olmstead County to meet the needs of the people that live there. And we had staffing challenges before COVID came. It's just exploded um, during COVID. And what, a, what about, uh, what can the legislature do to help with wages? I think one give us the money in our rates so that we can get it change that timing of the leg from when we spend it to when we get it I think people say well you get it on you know January 1st they don't send us a big check on January 1st we still have to have the residents in our building um, we built a building to be um, household model person-centered 
So our property rate is based on 182 scaled beds. So when we're at 88 residents, we're not getting the money to make our debt payments. We're making our debt payments. We're, we're doing those things because we were in a position to be able to have some cash. Um, but that's not sustainable. So if the government or the legislators want to assist us, they really need to look at the amount of money we're getting as well as the timing of when we're getting it. That we can't, I mean, anytime I talk to a business person, they yeah. they almost laugh at me when I talk about that lag time. So, And... Um and talk about the caregivers and the and the how how you're recruiting them, the ones that are staying, why they stay, um, and and how many people may want to work there, but they can find a similar job for more money somewhere else. Well, I think we're blessed with some really great caregivers that are dedicated to our residents and just Samaritan Bethany. They they are amazing individuals. Um, I think that how we recruit, retain, we really are trying to get into the high schools and, and have people look at it as a profession, not as just something to do during the summer. Um, I think until we elevate that career into the position that it really is, it's things aren't gonna change a lot. Um, we really um, try to have the benefits available for our staff. We're in a community where there are many options to yeah. work in healthcare. So we need to look at what we can do to kind of have a different perspective. And always in long-term care, I've been doing it for over 30 years, you know, talking about the relationships we build with our residents and, and COVID even proved it more. I mean, we were their family and we still are for many of them. Um, so being there for them, you, you build a relationship so much different in that atmosphere than you do, you know, in the other clinical settings or hospital settings. So I think that relationship building is, is definitely a recruitment opportunity that and what is we close here what is it that you what's the one message you just want lawmakers to hear right now the the caregivers are the heart and soul of how we're going to care for our elders we're all going to be old someday if we're lucky enough and so if we're not going to start taking care of them now these people are not going to be there to take care of them when they need it and so we, we can't ignore it any longer Thanks, Blois. Be sure to tune in next week as this important conversation on the caregiving crisis across Minnesota continues. More Minnesota Matters coming up. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel. Longtime Minnesota State Fair CEO Jerry Hammer is retiring this spring, and his successor was announced this week. MNN's Brent Palm had a chance to talk with the State Fair's current Deputy General Manager about her new role. Welcome, Minnesota State Fair CEO-elect Renee Alexander. Big news this week for you and a lot of us who love the Minnesota State Fair. From what I hear, you're going to be the next Chief Executive Officer of Great Minnesota Get-Together. How are you feeling? Are you excited? Is, did you know this was coming? Well, thank you, Brent. I'm excited and also realize that this is a tremendous responsibility. A lot of people, myself included, really value the State Fair, and we all, you know, there's a lot of us that have, you know, great memories here, and I, I look at myself as the caretaker for one of Minnesota's treasures moving forward, so um, it's a big responsibility, but I've got a great team with me and, and looking forward to, to stepping into the role later this spring. From what I understand, it was a nationwide search. Were there a ton of interviews? When did you know I might land my dream job. <laughs> uh, you know, it's been a process. There were a couple rounds of interviews, and I would say within the last uh, week or so, it was looking looking like it was moving in my favor. So it's still rather new to me as well. 
I know you've been a deputy general manager of the Minnesota State Fair for about 13 years. How do you feel of maybe being one of the faces of the Minnesota State Fair from here on out? I mean, that's, it's, what do you say, a perk or one of the uh, <laughs> the detriments of, of the position. But um, in my role as deputy general manager, I oversee our marketing and communications department. So I've had my plenty of opportunity to, to do interviews and, and kind of be the, the face of various aspects of the fair. So um, just realize this will be a little more elevated and we'll probably be doing a lot more interviews if today is any indication. Jerry Hammer, I interviewed him in November, and he said he's not going away. How important is it for him to kind of pass the torch to you this spring before he officially retires? I think it's super important for both of us. I mean, I've worked with and for Jerry for all of my time at the fair. So we have a great working relationship. He has an incredible amount of knowledge. His historical knowledge is just second to none. And I think that's something that we as an organization will be relying on for years to come. He's kind of laid out his list of, of things that we'll be discussing over the next several weeks as we uh, as we kind of do the, the, the passing of the torch. But um, I think as probably most of your listeners know who've followed the fairgrounds in and the fair. Jerry, Jerry's a, a neighborhood guy, so he, he won't be far away at all if, if we need to call on him for anything. So um, it's, I, I feel like it'll be a really smooth transition. Hey, if you had to pick maybe uh, a couple of the top things you're looking forward to as the new leader of our state fair, have you, do you have a few? This time of year, when we look out on these dreary, cold days, it's, you know, looking forward to that opening opening day of the fair. I mean, and I think, you know, one thing I, I want to be clear is, you know, we're not, I'm not looking to come in here and change up all of the traditions that, that make the fair what it is. You know, we'll, we'll probably do it, be doing some small tweaks and, you know, really our focus is on creating the best experience we can for all who are, are participating in the fair and all who come through our gates. So um, I, I don't think it'll, it'll be any major changes, but, uh, you know, I'm just going to be starting to get my feet wet here soon and I'll probably have more, more thoughts on that but just opening those gates on that opening day is always a thrill now i know in your previous role or current role you've been very involved in uh, the entertainment and the grandstand events does that take on a, a new meaning now that you're the ceo it does. My intention is to stay involved with the grandstand booking at least for for a while. I've uh, you know been working in, on that piece for about 18 years and have really developed some some really key and valuable relationships. So I, I'm not ready to, to pass the torch on that quite yet. So I, I may be uh, juggling a couple hats here for a while and and will still remain involved in, in the grandstand aspect for for at least the near term. I have to ask this because I asked Jerry Hammer this, and I think he told me in diapers, but what's maybe your earliest memory of the State Fair? Where did you grow up, and how long have you been going to the Great Minnesota Get-Together? Sure. So I uh, moved here with my family when I was eight years old. I was actually born in Kansas. My memories are coming here with my family probably in middle school are my first memories. You know, I just have always loved the, the just the energy and the, and the magic of having all of the, the people from around the state here and just all that we have to offer. So um, I'm not quite diapers, but uh, my memories go back. My first concert I ever saw in my life was at the, at the Minnesota State Fair. I saw Kenny Loggins in 1980. And ironically, he is now out on his farewell tour, coming full circle. I may have seen my first concert maybe that same summer, and it was Night Ranger. And I, I believe yeah. it was, I believe it was the same summer. I think it was the summer of '85. So yeah, I mean, that, that's the beauty of the Grandstand. I think there's a lot of people that a lot of their first concert experiences were here. So, um, which is is such a fun memory for folks. 
I was one of the people who had not been to the fair for two years until last summer. Does it feel pretty good to you folks knowing that we're building on a year that was almost back to normal? Absolutely. Yeah, there, there's no question that 2020 and 2021 were incredibly challenging for us. And coming back and feeling more normal this past year was wonderful. And, you know, I think the, the numbers that we saw as far as the record-breaking attendance that we saw in 2019, I, I don't know if we'll see those for quite some time. And, and that's okay. You know, that's that's really not how we necessarily gauge our success is by attendance. It's an easy thing to measure. But for us, it's really about, you know, creating an event that people have good experiences and, and, and want to come back. So we're hopeful that, that 2023 will, will be a great and, and strong year. Well, Renee, thanks uh, so much for joining us and introducing yourself. I promise we will see you and bug you at the State Fair and throughout the year now that you have this new position. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I will hold you to that, Brent. Thanks, Brent. Now you have me thinking of sunny skies and live concerts, bacon on a stick, Martha's cookies, turkey to go. Okay, I think it's time for me to go. You catch my drift. More Minnesota Matters in 60 seconds. We asked kids what it took to be a dad. This is what they had to say. A father is always present. I mean, what, father, what real father figure can you have if they're not there? In order to be a good dad, you need to love, love your son. You need to put gas in your car so you don't break down in the middle of nowhere. And you need to make them breakfast. Yep. I mean, just to maybe um, play like a board game with me or to just stay home and play um, some video games with me. Just to do like that one little thing is what I really look forward to. I'm not asking him to be a perfect dad, but he should try. He's just a constant force in my life. There's no other type of love like a dad's love because it's not comparable to anything else. Take time to be a dad today. Call 877-4DAD411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Last week, we heard part one of a two-part interview with MNN Learfield Ag reporter Mark Dorenkamp and the dean of the College of Food, Ag, and Natural Resources Sciences, Brian Buer, about the new future of the Advanced Ag Research Project and the moving forward with a preview of the site complex. Here is part two of that interview, starting with how this will help farmers navigate modern, everyday farm issues. You know, how we got there. Um, you know, as I said, we started about four or five years ago with an initial conversation really about our dairy research facilities. So right away, we started talking with our agricultural producers, with industry businesses, with some of our partners in research, the USDA's Minnesota Department of Ag. And we started to get that, exactly what you were talking about, that message that, you know, there's really complex interactions. And for us at the university and all of our land grants, really, our ability to understand those complex interactions between what's happening in those crop systems with the various nutrients, whether that's commercial fertilizer or it's, you know, manure or what that is. What is that? How does that move through the soils? How do we take all those questions are coming up, disease, health issues, you know, plant implications of, of composition related to animal nutrition. With our technologies now between genomics, you know, microbiomes, our understandings there, we can start to put that together. And that's what I think from a timing perspective, it really is driven by both the needs of agriculture and business, as you were saying, but it's kind of really neat that the technology's caught up, right? The, the remote sensing technologies, the ability to, the, the, the imaging technologies that are now, whether that's satellite imaging on the land or it's microbial imaging in a lab. That technology is combined to allow us to bring that together. And so in some ways, I think we're fortunate to be at this time. Um, it just fits the times and, and what's needed. Let's talk about the timeline a little bit, where you're at now, where you hope to be going forward, and 
and maybe how people could even get involved along the way. Yeah, we're, well, it's, it's been a little quiet lately because we've been, you know, one of our steps is to consider what the, uh, obviously we'll have to have a site to position this on. So we're in that process and that's where we're at. Uh, as we get that confirmed, that's kind of a, a go, no go point from the standpoint of a first putting something uh, on the ground. And so as that moves along, we're going to move to a pre-design stage. And that's really the stage where we start to think about, okay, what are the actual nuts and bolts of the facilities? Uh, we know that we'll have swine, turkey, uh, dairy and beef, uh, cattle operations, uh, the land base. That's a key part. As I was talking about some of those interactions of crop systems, you know, we're carefully looking for what those characteristics are and identifying that. So we're right on the cusp of that now. And once that piece starts to move ahead, um, that's when we really trigger the pre-design and then the, you start to launch the, okay, we're moving towards build at that point. Uh, so we anticipate that 2025 will be that point where we start to actually, um, you know, do some of the construction piece in that. So that's just the physical side of it, putting that together. And that's moving along quite nicely. Um, and then the other element to that is the financial piece of it. So as I said, we've Hormel Foundation has been a lead funder in this. Um, we've got some other partners who at this point we aren't um, able to, to discuss that are highly interested and engaged on this. And then the university, this uh, session, uh, we actually just had a bill introduced uh, into the Senate and the House uh, Senate file 797, um, and we're requesting and requested last year as well with the state uh, a matching fund relative to the Hormel Foundation's gift. So that's a $60 million request into the um, the, the, the uh, state legislature this year. So we're hopeful that that moves through um, with the capital request. And then the university basically has the other third. So we've, uh, we're, we're taking actions to provide the financial resources, both through philanthropy and our own resources. And so I emphasize that because we get this as a, as a, a state, a government uh, partnership, a university partnership, and business industry and, and agriculture partnership across the board. And we're all sort of pitching into this. So we've been working on that space going forward. Um, so that's, that's about where we're at now. So we're pretty excited to get from a lot of this planning. We're just on the cusp of implementation and, and uh, people will see that moving forward now uh, much more directly shortly. Yes, very exciting, Dean Boer. Anything else about the project that we haven't touched on that you want to make sure we highlight? Yeah, you know, kind of just what I was saying. Um, we've we've worked a lot, of course, with agriculture broadly, uh, farmers, businesses, industry. We've partnered with uh, the government agencies all the time. Um, and, and I think we've come up with a pretty novel way. We actually view this as a platform that's open to anybody who can find it of value. And I said this is about uh, our region's agriculture and including our neighboring states. And so we really have thought deeply about what are the, how do we position this so that people can do their research or their education there, how we can facilitate that, how they can co-invest, how they can be partners. We're, so we're, we're really, as we get this on the ground again, that's one of the things we're really looking at. So it's when I was talking about we've engaged a lot when we were designing it. We're going to be continuing that engagement across the board with our regional universities, with agribusinesses, with our producer members and groups, with uh, you know our DNR agencies and some pollution control, thinking about how do we bring government into this. Um, so a lot more activity on that. So we welcome people to join us. It's about the success of agriculture and food systems in this region, central to the to the global agriculture system. So um, we welcome all, all uh, people who are interested in that. So a website or a resource, if people would like to follow along as this moves forward, would you direct them anywhere? 
Um, right now, we do not have a website up on this yet. We have been waiting for, you know, as we're trying to move to this more solid footing on uh, where we have location, um, those things, um, mainly because we're in the process of doing that work still. But certainly, um, you know, people are welcome to reach out uh, directly to me here at the University of Minnesota. I'm pretty easy to find on the web <laughs> if they have questions um, and welcome that. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Minnesota Matters. Be sure to join us again next week on this MNN affiliate station. Same time, same place. From all of us here at MNN, have a great week.